This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we dive deep into the realm of cultural anthropology on the program. Yeah, that's right. So strap in. Strap in. Because we've had a lot of economists on the on the program, but this is our first anthropologist. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about numbers and the stats, you know, basically every month. John Osberg offers a, a very different take. So John is a fellow of the Public Intellectual Program at the National Committee of U.S.-China Relations. Yeah, he's based out of the University of Rochester. He's a professor, professor there. Professor there, right. Um, and actually, I think John was taken aback when we got in touch with him. Well, I mean, you know, he's usually in the New York Times, and now he gets to be on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, which yeah, is fun. pretty amazing. Pretty big deal for, for John. <laughs> <laughs> but also, Vancouver Real Estate is not necessarily uh, something he thinks about a lot. Right. Uh, he actually is an anthropologist who studies China. But anybody who understands the real estate market in Vancouver and operates within our context would understand why we'd get in touch with John, right? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot in the past about social and political stability being a huge driving force for international capital coming right. to Vancouver, people buying real estate here from abroad. Um, in the last couple of years, mainland China has been a huge source of that capital from abroad. Sure. And those new rich or the entrepreneurial elite in China is who John Osberg studies. So we wanted to get into, you know, the mindset of what's going on in China and why is a lot of that money making its way over to Vancouver? So I got to say, I wasn't here or involved in the interview, but I did get to listen to it on the way over to the studio today. And it's 
it's riveting stuff. I mean, it's it's interesting, and it's it's very interesting how he collected his data. It actually sounds like Braden would be a great anthropologist. Oh yeah, yeah, no, out six seven nights a week <laughs> on the town. Uh, doesn't remember the night before, right? So Brady D party special. a lot, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But so, uh, but we should say his book title, Adam. You got it right there. Yeah. So his book is called Anxious Wealth: Money and Morality Among China's New Rich. Yeah, um, but before we get to the discussion with John, Adam, you're looking dead to the world here. Thank you, Matt. Uh, you know, it's 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 not often that I hear that I'm looking dead to the world. I hear it three times a day. But yesterday was uh, Tuesday, okay? Yeah. So w- what what's happened is that, you know, our market's been so busy, and it used to be that people would look at offers on Monday. That's right. And now we're seeing a shift where a lot of people are looking at offers on Tuesday. Tuesday right. is kind of the new offer day. And I think, you know, it makes sense on some levels. You know, you catch people that missed out and were frustrated on, on the Monday, on the Monday. Yeah. and then on the second side of that, you know, you might also um, give people a gap day to get an inspection done or to line up their financing. Yeah, so, I think the the logic there makes sense that if you want subject free offers, you want to give them that extra day so they can do their due diligence. Exactly. So, but now you know it's it's funny. It, now it just kind of takes over Monday and Tuesdays are a real spike in the week for agents now after the weekend which is always busy too yeah so you almost feel like wednesday has become now your saturday where it used to be like tuesday was almost your saturday right right? so yeah i mean i'm a little tired i had a lot of multiple offers over the last two days um some big wins some some losses and one thing i will say is that you know it's interesting we were talking at the office the other day and there's an agent at our office who claims he invented the tuesday offer presentation shifted the whole game he shifted the game so we all know who came up with the sneaky peak yeah we know who who did yeah um and uh, on thursday evenings thursday evenings yeah. absolutely and that's everybody in the industry knows knows uh knows that david jones yeah um i came up with the agents open on friday mornings <laughs> i think i'm responsible for the two to four slot for the open houses but i but you guys smell that yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing there's an agent in our office who's claiming that the Tuesday offer presentation was his idea. And what we're going to do is we're going to post the question, who was responsible for the Tuesday evening offer presentations on our website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And if any agents listening know who it was, and if we can line up these two names, we'll give them the real credit that they deserve. But yeah, until yeah. then. He, he needs the credit. The credit should go where the credit's due. Uh, so let's see exactly. if we can let's see if we can make a match here. All right, Matt. Well, hey, without further ado, let's cut to our interview with John Osberg. Enjoy, guys. I'm here with John Osberg, assistant professor at the University of Rochester and an anthropologist. How you doing, John? Good. How are you? Great, great. Thanks for taking the time today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Okay, great. Well, we got in touch with you, John, because you wrote a book called Anxious Wealth, Money and Morality mm-hmm. Among China's New Rich. And uh, it's a, it's an obvious fit for the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Um, <laughs> one of the questions I had maybe just to start is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, how did you uh, get interested in China's New Rich? I, I guess I first got interested in China uh, after college, I taught English there for a year, and I was just really struck by the kind of the irony of of their the rise of this really wealthy class of business people in what was still officially a, a communist country. And so I went right. back to the U.S. and started grad school 
And um, I did my dissertation research basically with a group of wealthy entrepreneurs in the city of Chengdu in, in Sichuan province in southwest China. So I spent, in total, I've spent about six years in China. Um, about four of those have been doing kind of intensive field research uh, with mostly with the same group of uh, wealthy entrepreneurs in Chengdu. And, and how did you get in touch with the subjects of your study? Well, that's a couple of different ways. I mean, the the way in which I actually met most people was, believe it or not, I, I was the co-host of a variety show on Chinese television. And the show profiled local businesses, um, actually profiled a lot of new real estate developments. And through my work with the show, I met a lot of the, the business people who were the owners of the, the uh, businesses we profiled on the show. But also I met quite a few people you know, believe it or not, just kind of randomly hanging out in nightclubs and bars that were frequented by the new rich. Right. Yeah. So at the time, at the time, there weren't a lot of um, foreigners in Chengdu, especially foreigners who spoke, you know, decent Chinese, which I guess I did. Yeah. And so people, people were kind of curious about me and, and um, I would help some people do some translation work, but, um, and once I knew a kind of core group of people, I met their friends and, um, you know, and after a while, I, I sort of had a, a network of uh, research informants that I spent most of my days with. Right. And two questions. One is, did you find, were the subjects of your study quite guarded or were they pretty open with you from the get-go? Yeah, they were pretty open with me. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, you know, these are wealthy, powerful people and they, for the most part, they like to talk about themselves. <laughs> so, um uh, so they were pretty open. I mean, you know, anthropology, you know, academic research is slightly different from journalism in that, you know, one of the ethical principles of anthropology is that we protect the identities of our informants. So, you know, I once I assured them that I would, you know, I wasn't going to reveal their, their real names, um, you know, they were pretty open with me. And uh, the second question I had, which was kind of off topic now, but uh, how did you land the gig on TV? Was that because you spoke... <laughs> pretty good Chinese or yeah that pretty much pretty much that's all it took you know just being a foreigner who spoke decent Chinese I certainly don't have uh you know great tv hosting skills or or acting <laughs> skills or any of that but I, I guess they were adequate for the time and I you know I sort of saw it as a great opportunity to you know to meet people for my research so even as much as I sort of you know it wasn't the kind of thing that I would certainly pursue in the u.s it was it was too good too good of an opportunity to pass up yeah, i think no kidding no kidding so so your book is called anxious wealth uh, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by anxious wealth sure well i think the the anxious sort of refers to a couple different phenomenon that i talk about in my book and i mean one of the things that my book emphasizes is the is the importance of connections uh to business success in china and I describe in, in a lot of detail in the book how these connections are are formed, often through through banqueting, through uh, drinking, gambling, carousing in nightclubs together, and and often through bribery as well. And these connections often include ties to powerful government officials as well. Um, and because success is often so dependent on these connections, there's often a kind of fragility to to their success. And and I think a, a good illustration of this is if if you look at the the list that are published of the richest people in China, 
there's an incredible amount of turnover on those lists, right? There's a sense that even even I think maybe about 10 years ago, there was even the perception that being on the, the list of the richest uh, people in China was kind of a curse because it often made you a target of maybe anti-corruption campaigns or, you know, um, uh, your, your business rivals would maybe want to expose some of your corrupt dealings. And so and another side of this is that because um, business people's fortunes are often intertwined with those of a powerful official. If that powerful official is brought down in an anti-corruption campaign, often the, the business people connected to that official are brought down as well. Um, and a good and a good example of this is the probably the most well-known real estate developer in Chengdu is a guy named Deng Hong. And uh, he built what is actually the largest building in the world in terms of square footage called the Global Center in Chengdu. And about a month after this building was completed, um, the former mayor of Chengdu was was detained in an anti-corruption investigation, and shortly after that, Deng Hong disappeared as well. So you know, here's this guy who's at the top of you know one of the biggest developers in the in the region, and and just like that, you know, his his fortune was reversed, and and he managed to avoid serious jail time. But uh, you know, from what I've heard, most of his assets were were uh, were seized. And so there's the kind of political side of the anxious. Um, the other side of the anxious is just the more just the day-to-day toll of of maintaining these networks through constant banqueting, through uh, gift giving, uh, you know, through uh, just the, the lifestyle itself kind of took a toll on on many of my informants who were. It was un- not uncommon for them to be out, you know, five or six nights of every week until you know two o'clock in the morning. And uh, you know, if you, then if you've got to get up the next day and go to work, it really can take its toll. Yeah, no, no kidding. So it's not, you've outlined some pretty striking differences, but but are there other striking differences between doing business in in North America and and in China? I think the first aspect I'd emphasize is you know what what I mentioned in the previous question is just the the importance of connections and really the power of connections that people can do things with connections that they might not be able to do uh, in North America. Um, and then the second part, I think the second big difference is the extent to which the state controls large sectors of the economy in China still. And in particular, um, state control of land has a huge impact on business. Obviously, if you're in real estate, you know it has a, a huge impact on you. But in other sectors, um, like mining, for example, you really have to cultivate uh, ties to the state to have any chance of success, um, and and even uh, the financial system it's, is still largely state controlled, and it can sometimes this can sometimes make it different for dif- difficult for uh, for private business people to get access to capital. Can you be very successful in China and not be corrupt in the way that we think of corrupt? Like, is that sort of part of the game? Well. Yes. Um, I mean, here's how I would answer that question. I mean, there there are no doubt many sort of self-made business people uh, in China who've, you know, made their fortunes through talent, hard work, and maybe a bit of sure. luck. But what happens is that they're competing against people who may be, you know, who might, might possess and perhaps made their fortunes because of connections they have, right? And so once they they become successful... Even you know many of these individuals who who may have you know 
made their fortune through completely legitimate means still have to seek ties to powerful individuals, in some instances for protection from their competitors who might have, you know, possess powerful connections that they could conceivably use against them. So in some ways, I mean, to, to summarize, I think that in some ways it doesn't matter how you've made, whether you've made your fortune through legitimate means or through seemingly corrupt means, um, connections still matter in the end because, you know, it's a corrupt system in which your competitors might have, you know, ties to, say, the sons and daughters of powerful officials that they could potentially use against you. Okay, great. So the part of that establishing those networks and connections, as you mentioned, is being out on the town, by the sounds of things, five, six, seven nights a week. It sounds like you spent uh, a lot of time out on the town yourself uh, doing field work. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about how those relationships are forged? Yeah. Um, yes, I, cert- I mean, in a sense, that's what the bulk of my field work consisted of was. <laughs> that sounds uh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you know, I, I it, it, it took its toll on me as well. Um, you know, it became pretty exhausting. And in fact, my role uh, often in these in these evenings was a kind of designated drinker where i would you know if if the 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 a businessman friend of mine wanted to entertain a client or an official i was sort of given the job of making sure that person you know drank to their capacity and by by constantly toasting them and 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 you know oh my god uh, getting myself pretty drunk as well so <laughs> um your notes in the morning were probably just a blur Exactly. No, I definitely lost a lot of great data because I simply could not remember <laughs> what had happened the previous evening. Um, and so, I mean, what, it's interesting, you know, a lot of, I guess, people who are outside of this system think about it primarily in terms of bribery. But one of the, the most interesting things that a, a businessman that I came to know quite well said to me is that, you know, if you want to give a bribe to an official, you know, stand in line, right? You know, everybody wants to bribe an official, but but you. So, in order to even get into a position where you can bribe someone, you know, you need to develop a kind of relationship of trust and familiarity, and that's primarily going to be done through things like you know, drinking together, having dinners together, going out on the town. You know, sometimes even you know, visiting saunas or brothels together. You know, engaging in kinds of risky, transgressive sorts of activities which are viewed as necessary to kind of develop a relationship of trust between you and your client or you and, a, and an official patron. There sounds like there's obviously a gender component to these relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's sort of a, a, a system in which that sort of privileges men and sort of assumes male participants. I mean, these these nightclubs often, you know, have female hostesses who are available to accompany the club goers, you know, for a fee. So I actually knew in my book, I devote a chapter to um, businesswomen and the way they sort of negotiated this kind of masculine gendered entertaining was interesting. I mean, some of them would would actually uh, send, you know, junior male employees of their firms to do the entertaining for them. Or sometimes they would show up and kind of have a few drinks and then leave and sort of let the men do their thing. But it can be difficult as a woman to really insert yourself into the center of these networks, given that most of these practices are, are highly gendered. You might have trouble remembering, but do you have a, a, a kind of the craziest story from your field work? Uh, crazy. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> There's so many, I'm not even sure. I was going to say, you to, don't have uh, to answer it if you don't want to. It's just <laughs> <right>. <laughs> 
I, I will just one um, statistic that I that I like a lot is uh, so in 2008, you know, there was one uh, businessman I knew pretty well, and we were sitting in a club, and he he told me as he was paying the bill, he told me how much he had spent in that club uh, in the, the the previous year, and it was somewhere. Let me see if I can remember this figure. It was close to about four hundred fifty thousand dollars U.S. <laughs> and he, you know, he mentioned this casually. He saw it as, um, you know, fairly normal and and in fact justified. You know, he said, you know, this is necessary for my business. Um, oh yeah, and, he, and he, well, he said it was necessary for his business, and he said it was he said it was better spending it in a club than in a casino because he says in the casino, you know, you're as soon as you lose your money, you're you're forgotten. Whereas he says he gets, you know, VIP treatment uh, by everyone in this particular club. So from the people who wash the bathrooms to the manager. So he thought it was money well spent. And also stuff like that. It's almost like, you know, people in, in the U.S. say pay a lobbyist X amount to kind of grease the wheels of business. It's almost like it's just almost more personal in China by the sounds of things. Right, right. And I've heard, I don't know the origin of this saying, but I've heard it's said before, you know, from some, I don't know, some Chinese businessmen probably came up with this, that, you know, what you do with lawyers, we do with banquets. So essentially, you know, what would be, as you said, what would the kinds of um, access and, you know, deal making and, and uh, et cetera, which would be done through a lobbyist in, in the U.S. would no doubt, you know, be done over a dinner or a banquet or uh, an evening of karaoke in China. So the key component of how we got in touch with you was this idea of anxious wealth. And and Vancouver, obviously, is a very, um, the real estate market's still very hot. For the last three, four years, it's been insane. The prices have increased dramatically. Um, Mm -hmm. We've implemented last year a foreign buyer's tax of 15%. And a lot of that in the media was based around uh, mainland Chinese money and and what that was doing to the market. Can you talk about some of the factors driving wealthy Chinese business people to pull their money out of China and, and invest it abroad? Sure. I mean, I think I think maybe you can divide it into two categories of factors. I mean, and and the first would be lifestyle factors. So these are things like um, you know children's education. Uh, you know, finding better better schools for their children. Uh, a lot of wealthy Chinese really have a, a low opinion of of the Chinese educational system. They they often see it as pr- just producing obedient test takers rather than you know children who are going to be bold and take risks and and be creative. Um, another lifestyle factor would definitely be pollution and concerns about uh, f- food safety in China. But then there's probably another category of factors, which would be more kind of political and economic factors. And definitely because of the sort of precariousness of, of success that I, I mentioned, in which, you know, you don't, if, you, if you've made your fortune through connections, you, you never really know when those connections are going to, you know, to deteriorate, you know, because of an anti-corruption campaign or, or some other means. Um, if you haven't made your fortune through connections, you never know when someone else's connections might yeah. be used against you. Yeah. You know, so so both of those I think um, lead to a kind of uncertainty and anxiety about the future, and and a lot of you know, which pushes people to try to uh, 
invest their money and get you know protections abroad. I mean, China, you know, does not have a, a very well developed uh, or reliable legal system, nor do they have very reliable property rights. And then I'll throw out a third category as well of factors, and, and I think there's simply an element of, of fad, you know, that everyone around them is immigrating, so you know they might as well do it as well. I mean, a, a couple wealthy business people that I know personally even mentioned this to me. They said, you know, everyone around me is telling me I need to immigrate. You know, do you think I should immigrate? A sort of herd mentality that yeah. everyone else is doing this, so I should probably do it too. Is there any status? Like I'm thinking, sort of owning a property abroad is presumably status is is part of it as yeah, well. Yeah, right. There's the, it's an element of kind of conspicuous consumption or keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, my you know my my friends all have property abroad, therefore I need to to do that as well. And also, I mean, another side of this is if you look at the you know look at the real estate market in China, where what in China, typically referred to as a villa, an unattached house with a yard, even in the suburbs of Beijing or Shanghai, is probably going to cost you somewhere between three and six million dollars uh, U.S. And it's not even going to be half as nice as you know the equivalent in North America. The the construction quality is going to be much lower. Certainly, the landscaping is not going to be as nice. And so, you know, from that perspective, a, a kind of a house, an unattached house in North America seems like a steal, um, even in a, you know, an overheated property market like Vancouver. Right, right. So, you know, we often talk about social and political stability and educational institutions. Those types of things are, are very attractive. This 15% foreign buyers tax, um, you know, the data is still out on what type of impact it has. It seems like it has slowed down um, investment to a degree, but just in, in line with your point about, you know, villas costing three to $6 million US and the potential of losing all your wealth, do you think that uh, a 15% foreign buyer's tax is, uh, is a, a deterrent for the types of people you studied in China in terms of investing in real estate in Vancouver? I, I, I doubt 15% would, would be a deterrent for most of them. You know, for maybe for people who are just barely able to afford it, but I think most of the, for most of them, the 15% won't make any difference at all. I mean, especially since for many of these purchasers of, of real estate from China, I don't think it's viewed as an primarily as an economic investment. In fact, people are often willing to take a loss on it. Right, Vancouver is not seen as the place where they're going to be making money. Right, it's typically that's still back in China, and you know the real estate purchase in Vancouver is simply a way of parking their assets, especially if there's a sense that that 15% tax is going to be recouped, you know, in a in a property market that's still seeing a lot of growth. And I think it won't be a deterrent at all. So in terms of parking money outside of China, it sounds like there's undoubtedly a variety of vehicles people are using to to park money in other places. But why do you think yes. global real estate is is such an attractive investment? I th- I think because it's um doesn't require a lot of knowledge and skills to to enter you know it's all it really requires is capital right um and global real estate in you know top tier cities has been a very safe and and in many instances lucrative investment for the past decade or more so mm-hmm. I think that's why real estate is so attractive. It's certainly a lot easier than, you know, in, investing in a, in a company or or even, you know, uh, stock markets or other sorts of investment vehicles. Okay. And last question for you here, John. 
what effect do you think, you know, there's some changes going on in China, obviously. What what effect do you think the, the government crackdown on corruption and, and capital outflows will have on Chinese foreign investment moving forward? I mean, that's a tough one because I could see it going in both ways. I mean, from, from what I've heard, the controls on capital outflow are starting to work, that that the amount of money leaving China has, uh, you know, after 2016 being the, the seeing the largest cap, capital outflow ever, um, you know, those numbers are starting to go down. And so, so that may have an effect, the capital uh, controls. But I mean, the anti-corrupt, the ongoing anti-corruption campaign could also be pushing, you know, business people and government officials, uh, you know, who who still fear being on the wrong side of that campaign to seek, you know, any means necessary of of parking their families and their assets abroad. Right. And so that, you know, the anti-corruption campaign I see as still being a kind of push factor for people trying to to move their money. Uh, and in some instances themselves abroad. I will say, though, for government officials, it's definitely gotten a lot harder to do that. The stories of, that perhaps you heard from the from the 90s and the 2000s of, you know, officials simply absconding with, you know, state assets and or, you know, their uh, kind of uh, money that they perhaps had embezzled is, is uh, I mean, I think that's increasingly rare. Did Vancouver ever turn up in your research? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I was thinking about that. So for whatever reason, most of the, the people that I knew in Sichuan tended to be headed to Southern California rather than Vancouver. Um, rains less there. I, I did, I came across, I was actually looking through my research files and I came across this article, this Chinese article that I had sort of stored away about how LA was the ideal destination for corrupt officials to keep their mistresses whereas Vancouver was the ideal destination for them to keep their wives and their children. That sounds so, like we're known as a, <laughs> the no fun so, city. That's uh, right, that's right. our reputation. So, um, I mean, I think kind of going back to your earlier question, and you perhaps know more about this than I do, but I mean, the big draw of Vancouver was, and Canada in general, was the uh, immigration through investment scheme, right? Right. Which, which, as I understand it, has been curtailed significantly. Yes. Um, and so, you know, whereas the U.S. does possess a similar scheme, but it's, I think the capital requirements are slightly higher and it's, it's, it's seen as a little more difficult to navigate than the one in Canada, at least in the past in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I think that could likely have a, a, a big impact on the, uh, the property market. Yeah. And, and now, I mean, Canada has, you know, it's a Pacific Rim city with deep roots with China and, and there's whole neighborhoods where there's, you know, fights that show up in the newspaper in condominium complexes where they're holding the meetings only in Mandarin and, and you know, not English. And mm-hmm. um, so I think part of the attraction for Vancouver is there's whole communities where you can, you know, really feel at home if you're if you're not so familiar with Canadian culture. So, you know, I think it's now it's almost a self-perpetuating kind of motion. But right, right. I think that's that's absolutely right. And and even you know, going back even earlier, in some ways, it was the um, the community from from Hong Kong that, right. that that came in the in the '90s in particular. You know, that was worried about you know the handover of Hong Kong to the mainland that right. maybe sort of planted the seeds of a sort of wealthy, you know, entrepreneurially inclined Chinese community that that also. 
you know, was attractive to uh, the subsequent wave of mainlanders. Fantastic. I actually, I had one thing to to add. I don't know if you've um, heard the, uh, this the saying that many wealthy uh, Chinese have about about Canada that it's sort of their experience as immigrants. Um, I think it kind of captures an interesting side of this dynamic. But I've I heard this saying applied to Canada, but I think it's been applied to North America in general. But in Chinese, it, it sort of rhymes. So in Chinese, it's hao shan, hao shui, hao wu liao, and which means it's got it's beautiful mountains, beautiful water, but boring as hell. Um, <laughs> and then there's the counterpart is what how they describe China, which is hao zhang, hao luan, hao kuai le, which is uh, really dirty, really chaotic, but really fun. So, <laughs> and I think that kind of that encapsulates the experience of some, at least some of the uh, business people I know who've immigrated to to North America and Australia, where they, you know, they're initially impressed by the by the environment and the cleanliness and the orderliness, but then very quickly they feel very bored yeah. and and want to head back to China. So. Well, it sounds like you had some wild nights at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, well, yes. and you've also provided us with a good title for this episode. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks, thanks for the sure. uh, the addition there, John. And uh, but uh, yeah, once once again, thanks for your time. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, well, take care, John. Okay, take care. So there you have it, folks. My discussion with John Osberg professor of anthropology at the University of Rochester and author of Anxious Wealth. Very interesting conversation. Matt, you know what made me anxious there was uh, your little your little comment about Vancouver being no fun city when it when he was talking about having a mistress in California and a and a wife and family in Vancouver. Yeah, I think I I think I misspoke there. I think I meant not no fun, but just awesome stability. Stability. Yeah, that's the that's the point, right? You were getting at the fact that we are the stable. We're the family city. We're yeah. we're we're uh, all smiles here in Vancouver. All fun, above board fun. Yeah, all and, fun uh, above board. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, Matt. Well, moving on. What was your biggest takeaway from your interview? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to think about there, and it was super interesting stuff. I mean, my thought is just that you know we've talked a lot about you know Vancouver being one of these superstar cities. Uh, and it just outlines the global interconnectedness of the, of the world today. I mean that, you know, an accountant in Maple Ridge can see a 100K increase in his, his home value. And there's a, there's a ton of factors at work there. But one of them is instability, uh, political instability and anxiety in China. I mean, sure. that's, a, that's a fascinating thing. Or the rest thing. of the world in general, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and it's funny, like, because I mean, one thing that came to me as I was listening to, to your interview is it's just unbelievable the more money that you have, how small the world becomes, right? I mean, these wealthy elite, they, they basically, they treat the entire world like a city in yeah. a lot of cases, right? I mean, they're, they're jet setting, they're investing all over. And it's just interesting to think about how small the world has become with globalization. Yeah, with globalization. And, and if you have the money to, to operate within. Yeah, exactly. For sure. So Matt, we've got a lot of people that have signed up for our, our private client services. Yeah, that Thank real estate much. research tool. Uh, again, there's been tons of signups, tons of positive feedback. We actually, it's been so overwhelming. It was on the Scalina Real Estate site. We've actually got it on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast site now. It's vancouverrealestatepodcast.com 
slash PCS. So go over there and sign up for that. What you get with that is you get listing updates, usually about 24 to 72 hours before MLS, public MLS. And you also get sold prices and days on market, which is realtor level information. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth it. Uh, We've said before, we've spent a lot of time researching good research tools for real estate, and this is the best. The last thing we should say is we missed a short Mother's Day we did. Um, you know what? And moving forward, I think, you know, this is just one more reason to subscribe to the podcast. We're going to not be necessarily every Sunday. We're just going to throw those out whenever we have something to say. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be the uh, document don't create model, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look it up. If Go- there's Google that. that. Google I'm not that. even sure what that means. But. Yeah, me neither. But if you do have a question, shoot us an email. We're happy to keep doing the shorts if we get good questions to answer. And, and, or if uh, something comes up, right? If we have something to say, we're going to do it. But you can bank on uh, the regular episodes every Wednesday for sure. Absolutely. So Matt, how can people get in touch? Get in touch with me anytime, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And Adam? Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And the designated drinker? Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Excellent. Well, have a great week, guys. We'll see you maybe Sunday? Maybe. Take care. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.